1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: The Connected Leader by Karen Joy Hardwick. We are not leaders having a leadership crisis. We are leaders having a human being crisis. Connection is the antidote to this crisis. Yet many of us do not know how to connect to ourselves in a rigorously honest, self-compassionate way that enhances self-discovery and leads to creating healthy relationships with others. Without this self-connection, we cannot connect, in a meaningful way, to a higher purpose or engage with others in ways that help them step into their gifts. With the help of Karen Hardwick's Connection Architecture, we can create the kind of relationships that are transforming and inspiring. By learning how to show up, with her seven attributes of connection. We can empower workplaces and relationships through the grace and grit, resilience and empathy, honesty and authenticity that occurs when our connection wiring is activated in healthy ways. Hardwick's willingness to share her own stories of struggle and triumph, along with anecdotes from the boardroom to the family room, draws us into the pages of this book, and helps us to awaken and courageously lead. She uniquely synthesizes the emotional, spiritual, and relational, giving us permission to look at the ways we do damage to ourselves and others, while inviting us to live and lead from a place of true well-being, tapped into our purpose, and lifting up others. Karen is a global leadership consultant, coach, and clinically spiritually trained psychotherapist with master's degrees from both Princeton Theological Seminary and Rutgers. She works with Fortune 1000 leaders, teams, and entrepreneurs around the world on how to become connected leaders. She hosts the Saving USC podcast and speaks to many audiences on how the power of connection transforms the leadership landscape and elevates our well-being, engagement, and empowerment. She lives in Atlanta with her son and is surrounded by her connection warriors. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, and today I am talking with Karen Joy Hardwick about her book, The Connected Leader. Thanks for being here today.
1: Oh, Elizabeth, it is such a pleasure. I've been
0: looking forward to this. Me too. As I was saying just a couple of minutes earlier, it's um, really a book for everybody. It's you know called The Connected Leader, but it's really a book that has so much wisdom for for all of us. So um, that said, let me back up and just give you a chance to start out by telling us a
1: little bit about how you came to write this book. Well, thank you for that, Elizabeth. Yes, if I could do one thing differently about the book, I would urge my editors and publisher and, you know, all those people to retitle it because the title doesn't do the content of the book justice. And most people like you say, wow, this is a book for life, not just leadership. Now in the book, I talk about redefining who a leader is. And I mentioned that from my perspective, a leader is anyone who has people entrusted to their care. So stay-at-home parents are leaders in, in my book. So I came to this, the writing of this book, because of my work. I am a clinically and spiritually trained psychotherapist. I went to seminary to be an Episcopal priest, decided I didn't want to work on Sundays. And so being ordained was not my calling. And yet sitting with people and listening to their stories and helping them heal was my calling. So I went on for a clinical degree. And then through a series of events, I decided to enter into leadership consulting after spending some time in private practice and also in corporate America. Long way to say that I've had a front row seat to the complexities and joys and mess and triumphs of human beings, both in their personal lives and in their professional lives. And I wanted to tell the story that I am seeing over and over again that connection is the antidote in our relationships to self and to others at work and at home. Right, you
0: say that. And in the book, you do say we're not facing a leadership crisis per se, but we're facing a human being crisis.
1: Yeah, isn't that true? Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly. Even whenever we see leaders fall, the, the Icaruses of the world who fly too close to the sun and who think that for whatever reason, leading with their ego is going to get them what they want. And we see that very dramatic public fall. It's not that their leadership went awry. It's that what was going on inside of them, their unresolved hurts and wounds and trauma, were contributing to a leadership style that was damaging to themselves and to those around, and, and ultimately, of course, to the business as well. And we see that in our personal relationships. When we're not taking care of ourselves, when we don't know how to connect deeply to ourselves, we do damage to those around us and to our very souls. Connection is the antidote. There's no paradigm. There's no checklist. There's no five magic steps to take. It's hard, courageous, and good work to dig deep into ourselves and to find a mindful way to figure out who our true self is. And it's not for the fainthearted. And more and more people are interested in this kind of work. I'm sure you see that too, Elizabeth.
0: Yeah, I do I do. So it's interesting. you just said there's not a five step process or an easy one, two, three solution. however, you you do in the book lay out, you sort of frame out an approach because as you point out, and and I do see this as so true, is that connection to ourselves is something of a mystery to a lot of people. People, they, they might feel that need, but they don't necessarily know, what, how do you do that? You know? how, do you, how do you do this difficult work?
1: Mm-hmm. I do talk about seven things that I have found to be helpful in that process because I talk very clearly about what I've learned the hard way in my own life which is we can't connect to or lead anyone else in inspiring ways until we connect to ourselves in honest ways. So it's about, you know, I am a um, very grateful member of the 12 step recovery community. And in that community, we talk about the importance of rigorous self honesty, stepping into what that means. And that's a big question. Like how, how, do we become rigorously self-honest in a way that we can heal, in a way that we can look at our journeys, our stories, and hold those lightly and softly and leave behind the patterns that keep us stuck. There are these seven things that I have found that are helpful, but they're not magic bullets either. You still have to do the work. So I do talk about these seven connection pillars. And I'm sure you noticed in the book, it's not as if I talk about them as a solution. I talk about them more as an invitation. When we human beings start to weave things like listening deeply into our daily lives, an entire level of connection opens up to us that we didn't have before. And every human being will do that differently. One of the things that I talk about that's a common theme is having guides, people that you can trust to help lead you through the process. So people who do what you do, Elizabeth, people who do what I do, people who are walking the journey themselves, sponsors, spiritual directors, therapists, clinically trained coaches, people who really are not just trained, but are also doing the work themselves, on themselves.
0: I think that's, I think it's really important because if you're not doing the work yourself, you can't genuinely speak to how difficult it is and, and connect on that sort of energetic level that I I really do, I really do get you. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because I've often felt like well, I'll, I'll use an antidote from like a common therapy session, and, and often it's with couples, where I might suggest to one part one partner to speak to another partner in a way that's different, and I'll describe describe it, and they'll just look like, I just don't know how to do that. So I think it's easy to read something and think like, oh, I get it, but I don't. Know, I still don't know how to do it. So I think you need someone to model for you the way so much of what we did internalize and and the beliefs we live with were modeled for us throughout our development. Um, But that's someone showing you what does deep listening look like? Mm
1: -hmm. And with all the pillars, what I talk about is there's this sense of awareness and acceptance. So that's the first step, if you will. We have to awaken to the fact that there's something in our life that might not be working. Something usually happens where we say, you know, this is, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired about this particular dynamic or continuing to have the same outcome. And then there's a waking up process where we realize, "Hmm, I don't like this anymore. And then we surrender to the process. Something else has to change. Something has to shift and pivot because nothing changes if nothing changes. And connection is woven into all of this. In order to be aware, we have to connect to the reality of our lives. In order to surrender, we have to connect to the fact that our desire to be in control of every detail is creating a mess in our lives. And then we commit to a process that is about change. So the seven pillars are invitations to do things differently. And they all start with self. We can't give empathy to somebody else. And that's one of the pillars. If we don't learn to show it first to ourselves, we can't help others to navigate the chaos and the wisdom that's found in chaos, if we are not doing that in our own lives. So it all starts with ourselves. And it's an emotional, spiritual, relational journey.
0: Yeah.
1: That awakening,
0: I think, is a big, big part of it. I think you you share in the book a lot of your own personal stories, but also professional stories. And I when I think about that, what do, what would awakening look like? And in the book, I'm just associating to this one vignette you share, where there's an executive, and he suddenly realizes that all the gossiping that's taking place isn't helpful. And and I think in it you say he just calls all the executives together, and he very briefly says, "This is not okay." It's sort of an awakening story. This is not okay, and I'm going to bring someone in, so then again, a relationship, a guide, someone you know, to connect with us and, and help us how to move move beyond that. And I'm just wondering if you have examples or favorite experiences that kind of speak to the awakening, what awakening looks like.
1: Yeah you know, that's a really great question, Elizabeth. And let's talk about that example. So I remember that very specifically. It was a CEO of a company, the company was doing very well, he and I were chatting one day, one thing led to another, and he realized that he himself was contributing to this culture of gossip because the executives would come into his office and they would complain about one of their colleagues. And the CEO and this other executive would talk about the other person. And in this particular culture, it wasn't done in a malicious way. This, is a, this was a smaller enterprise. The founder of the company was the CEO. It was a very, it was a very humanistic culture, and still the CEO realized this is not working. So when he called his executive team in to say, This is not working and we're going to learn how to do conflict and direct conversations differently. He was also role modeling accountability. I remember him saying to me before he called his team together, I'm responsible for this. I'm not stopping this. When somebody comes into my office to talk about somebody else, I'm allowing that. So it was a very cool, inspiring change because he also said, it's not that the problem is outside of me and all of you need to change. He was putting himself into that. So we had a great role modeling for accountability. Started with him and it went on to his team. Right. Right. Again, I think
0: that's, The importance of doing the work, if you're not willing to to be accountable, it's hard to hold other people accountable too.
1: It is. And, you know, leadership is a spiritual path. People from all different kinds of faiths, and even some people who would say they have no faith, are looking for a deeper meaning in their life. Our culture, Elizabeth, is so splintered and divisive. And I'm certainly not saying anything profound here that other people are not also observing. We are at such a crossroads and all the things that are becoming cultural norms are even in their dysfunctional demonstration or manifestation are ways people are searching for connection. Now they might be doing that, in ways that are not healthy. For instance, there's such an uptick in addiction and it is breaking my heart to see how alcoholism and substance abuse disorder and all types of drug abuse are are just like, it's a wildfire out of control. People are numbing. Alcohol and drugs are not the problem It's what's underneath that's the problem that people are looking to escape. And then of course the alcohol and the drugs become the problem. And and we have the same thing over and over again in so many different ways. There's this oversharing on social media where people just bare their souls on camera in a way to get likes and approval. And there's something like a, a peep show. It's, it's kind of pornographic. People are looking for connection. And they're doing it in ways that are oftentimes a symbol of their own disconnected selves. Does that make
0: any sense to you? Yeah, no, it, it does. It does. And when you mentioned social media, and just the things that are, are the new norms in our culture, and including continuing to have all this advanced technology. I think it perpetuates this idea that there is some sort of control, like, oh, there should be like a program for that or an app for that. And, and, I, and I think that I too see an uprise um, or an increase in anxiety, which you know mm-hmm. fuels addictions. And I think this brings up another, I think it's a, another chapter in your book about um, chaos, just navigating chaos and, and accepting that things are constantly, constantly changing. And so the, any idea that you could control the number of likes that you get, or you can get the latest technology and suddenly be happy is just a misguided belief that
1: continues to, I think, grow. Mm. It's one of the reasons why I like what you post on social media because it's also beautifully done. It's about inspiration, it's about positive tools and encouragement and invitations to growth. And there's a tremendous amount of vulnerability in that, and it's done in a way that is deeply rooted in balance. in a mindfulness. Um, And I think what's happening is people are looking for connection in so many different ways. And oftentimes, just learning to sit with ourselves, whether you're a CEO of a multi-billion dollar global enterprise or a stay-at-home mom who is struggling with the day-in and day-out stirring of the oatmeal, when we learn to sit with ourselves, as hard as that might be, there comes to be a peace. And we can be so much more present to other people as a result of that. And that is where true connection starts. So when people read my book and talk to me about it or ask me to come and speak about it, one of the things that seems to really be resonating with people is the fact that we are all leaders. We can all be inspiring to those entrusted to our care. We can create psychologically safe places for people to have their own journey. And whether we do that at home and or at work, people are then invited to soar, to make mistakes, to innovate, to find their true self. And I believe that's the sacred calling of leadership to invite people to find the self that they were created to be. And we can't do that unless we're also doing that for ourselves.
0: So I'm imagining a listener who thinks of themselves as more pragmatic mm. who would say, what's the, what's the benefit of
1: allowing people to make mistakes That's a great question, and one I get a lot of times, because as you can imagine, a lot of the executives I work with are exactly that, cognitively focused, type A's. They look around. I had one CEO of a publicly traded company say to me when I came to talk to him about all of his assessment results, why should I care at all about this? Do you have any idea how successful I am and how much money I make? And I said, well, actually I do because it's public knowledge because you're a publicly traded company and you make a lot of money. Like we could feed an entire country off of what you make on a year. And that's not the point because that's an outside solution. And I'm asking you to find inner peace because I believe you're actually, is what I said to him, leaving money on the table, you could probably be more successful if you would address some of the things within you that are not landing positively on the people who work for you. Now, having said that, I'm very grateful that there is a lot of research going on in the public forum now from places like EY and McKinsey, Harvard, that are saying things like empathy and curiosity and listening deeply, mindfulness actually impacts the bottom line positively. These things really matter. And as we go through the great resignation, and the great resignation didn't just happen, we created it. We created workplaces that people want to leave. And that research is saying that all of the money that people might be leaving for would not be as seductive if they had managers who were empathetic, who created psychologically safe places in which they could innovate, people are looking for purpose. They don't necessarily want to leave. They're looking to create a life of meaning for themselves. And if their manager is not going to show up in empathetic ways, then they will be leaving and they are leaving. So empathy matters to the bottom line. So does curiosity, so does mindfulness. So does the ability to lead in a way that is inspirational. So all those people who are cognitively driven and very practical, this is practical. This is not a kumbaya. This is the real deal. Connection matters. It drives the business metrics. So what is it like to work with someone
0: like that? What, what's do you see a gradual shift within them? I mean, when you, when you someone takes you on and they have that original sort of way of looking at things.
1: Mm-hmm. I love a good challenge, Elizabeth. So <laughs> <laughs> many of my executives fall into that where they're a little dubious and not just a little skeptical when we first start the process but they heard that it works in other companies or they talked to other CEOs who said, you know, my work with Karen around connection and as we did this cultural transformation really made a difference. And this is how she and her team did it. So there's the word out on the street is helpful. People tend to listen to their peers. And yet they can still show up with a lot of skepticism. This is hard work. And in some ways, looking at spreadsheets and talking to shareholders and meeting with the board is easier because it's in their comfort zone. It's what they're trained to do. It's what they're good at. So I take leaders out of that table stakes game. What I say to people all the time is, you should be able to do all this. Think strategically, communicate effectively, handle the stress that comes from the marketplace, navigate the boardroom. You're getting paid to do that. As far as I'm concerned, those are table stakes. I'm here to release your inner true self with you so you can be the person you're designed to be, and that will make even a bigger difference. So people come into it skeptically at first, many of them, not everyone. And then they start to see the impact. Their team is more engaged. Innovation is happening. They become a talent magnet. People wanna join their team, their organization. There's an uptick in all the business metrics that matter, including talent retention. So things happen and it's in, you know Rome was not built in a day. So it's not like we flip a switch. This is not a one and done it's a process, it's a journey, and it's a commitment to a different way of leading.
0: So when you, this is sort of getting a little bit away from the book per se, but when you're working to help shape a a work environment, do you do it through regular meetings with with the CEO? Do you bring in lots of the executives? Do you take them on a retreat? What are some of the the ways you get them to You you set up an environment where they're starting that process of connecting with themselves.
1: Yeah, we do all those things. So a lot of it is individual transformative work that then spreads to the team, that then spreads to the culture. And there are a variety of ways that we do that, that are assessment-based and one-on-one confidential meetings. And then, yes, team retreats. And we have processes and products that help to embed all of the connection pillars, empathy, and curiosity, and listening mindfully, and all and the other four into the cultural DNA. So there's a process that's individual, team-oriented, and cultural. You just mentioned assessments, and I
0: remembered you you recognizing and talking briefly about the Enneagram and is that something you like to it's it's for for listeners it's well maybe you could say more about it I I think you probably know more about it than I do but it's a sort of a personality type assessment but it
1: has spiritual roots I believe it does it's a beautiful transformative way of learning to look at ourselves so I've used a lot of assessments over the years and you know you name the assessment we have certainly used them for executives and teams and cultures one of the things that i like the most about the enneagram is that my clients are telling me this is the most transformative assessment i have ever taken i had a client in the uk call me at 3am their time to say i have had an, er- an epiphany about this trance, about this assessment. I've had an epiphany about me as a result of taking this assessment. And, you know, there's no magic bullet. The Enneagram is a beautiful tool that takes us deep into understanding how have I tried to gain the approval of people around me? What have I had to do to make myself feel comfortable What happened in my childhood that led me to believe, oh, this is how I keep myself safe and approved of and lifted up. So those very motivating factors can become then our defense mechanisms as we become adults and unpacking all of that so that we can step into our truer self and leave those defense mechanisms behind is really important. I'm going to talk very specifically. So I'm an Enneagram too, which means I am the helper. And all of that is well and good until it's not. As a helper, I learned in my childhood that my very value was found in making everyone around me as a child feel cared for. My feelings didn't matter, my needs didn't matter, everybody else mattered. And so I became very good and I was probably wired to be um, focused on other people's well-being. So there was there's the wiring piece, but I was also taught that my whole value was in helping others. And I learned to leave myself behind. So it's no surprise that I trained to be a therapist and a priest and now a consultant and a leadership um, coach. And one of the things I had to do was say to myself along the way, and the Enneagram brought me to my knees when I really dug into it, was I love my gifts and I also have to learn to give those gifts to myself. So I had to take on a sense of humility and realize that I don't have to be all things to all people. And the Enneagram taught me about humility and about giving to myself so I could show up more for other people. So the Enneagram, we use a great deal with teams and executives, and it really has been a life-changing tool. I think
0: what's interesting about the Enneagram too, is that it also speaks to some of the dynamics between individuals uh-huh. and they they sort of lay out to um, sort of paint a picture of what it's like when someone when a someone who's very invested in helping bumps up against somebody that um, doesn't like to have anybody control them. I think that's <laughs> like a number eight or something you know and and, and just, it just speaks to like, there's some, it, it helps understand why some connections are hard, why sometimes it's difficult to, to connect with a, a one person versus, versus another. Um, and I have been encouraging people to explore that because I, I think it also gives people language that they, they recognize the description and they mm-hmm. say, they either love it and feel relieved that they Someone has, you know, captured what they struggle with, or there can be a very strong aversion to a part of it. And either, either way, there's usually one type where they feel strongly. Again, I think we need these, we need, we need guides, but we also
1: do benefit from these tools. We do. And, you know, I often say to my clients, I, I say it to myself, I say it to my son, work and life would be easy. If it weren't for the people, it's the relationships. It's what we come up against in ourselves when we're in conflict with other people, when we're navigating relationships, when we have a, um, my needs don't necessarily match your needs in the moment. This is hard. And work and life would be easy if it weren't for the people. In terms of the Enneagram, you know, it's a it's a really popular tool now. So I like to say that not all Enneagrams are created equal. There's some really pretty robust assessments out there. And then there's an you know, there's versions that are a little bit lighter, if you will. And one of my friends, I'm going to give him a shout-out. E- e- Ian Morgan Cron is an Enneagram black belt, and his work is really lovely and powerful in this space. It's invitational. It's gracious. He and I have worked on clients together. Um, And the Enneagram is a beautiful tool that creates that self-connection that for me and in my work, it all starts there with ourselves.
0: Right. I think, again, that sort of understanding your personal history is, a, is the way you can understand yourself. And um, when you sort of know what the story, your personal story, has been and how you developed a way of coping because of the circumstances, it helps you understand when those same dynamics get played out again either in the workplace or your, your personal life. And maybe you could say something a little bit about that because you talk about in that relationship, you know, listening deeply, but also pausing and t- checking in with yourself and asking yourself some questions.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. I believe that hitting the pause button is one of the most powerful things that we can do before we respond. Because it's in the pause that I think we find the miracle of sorting through maybe our neurological reflexes that have been embedded in our neural pathways that might not be serving us well. To some extent, we're all dealt a hand when we're born. Our parents, our socioeconomic um, situation, whatever our parents were carrying, those are things that we had no control over in many ways. And so as children, we develop these defense mechanisms. Even in situations where there wasn't trauma, there's still situations for all children that are difficult to navigate. It's life. And so what happens is we have to, as adults, start to realize, I'm an adult now, so what do I need to change? So as an adult, I don't have to live out of a children's story. What kind of a story as an adult can I create that's healthy and productive and constructive emotionally and spiritually and relationally? What do I need to change? What can I do differently for myself and those around me? Does that make any sense, Elizabeth?
0: Yes, yes. I think when you say we're all dealt a certain hand, that's so true. And even if you're very fortunate and have, you know, two stable parents and things are going well for you, we still enter into a society. That puts a lot of pressure on each of us to do things a certain way. And most children, their experience of school is one of the first times they realize, like, oh no, there's like one answer. You know, we're looking for that one answer. And it's funny, I, I, I like to listen to Tara Brock and she she tells the story of a little girl who was in an art class and the teacher was walking around and looking at everybody's pictures and said to this little kindergartner, what are you drawing a picture of? And the little girl said, oh, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, oh, well, you know, nobody nobody really knows what God looks like. And she said, they will soon. <laughs> And and just how, so even if all of your circumstances are, are going well for you, there's plenty of opportunity for your system to be shocked by a very harsh reaction.
1: Right. A reaction that can cause you to doubt yourself or that can plant seeds of rejection. Um, Yeah. The world is a hard place. And those of us in the helping professions have to make sure we're not sugarcoating that by contributing to this toxic positivity. I am all for resilience and healing and doing the work and not for doubling down on this toxic positivity that so many people can pontificate about, right? It's all about your attitude. And well, no, sometimes life really is hard. And having a good attitude, of course, is a sign of mental health. But so is saying, this is really hard. I'm grieving. It's heavy. Right. In fact,
0: I, I truly believe that that's part of why you need to have that connection to yourself because when you're connected to yourself you're not numb you are aware of a day what that feels really painful physically painful emotionally painful and then with that awareness you can if you can sit with that long enough you can start to explore what do you need you know what what would help you so it's I mean, one of, I think, the increase in addiction and anxiety is that we often don't know what to do when we are feeling uncomfortable, other than run away, get into problem-solving mode, or look for some way to, to numb ourselves. And so we are disconnected from knowing even what our needs are.
1: Yeah. We live in a culture that tells us that the solution is outside of ourselves, Buy a new car, get a new girlfriend, go on a fancy trip, have a drink. You deal with the stress of being a mom by the wine culture these days, right? And there's no outside solution to an inside problem. There just isn't. And most of those so-called solutions actually start to make our inside issues worse, I like to say all the time that whatever we don't deal with is downstairs in the basement, working out with weights and getting stronger. And it will win. It will win. You know, just this morning, I was having a really hard morning, Elizabeth. I'm going through some grief and letting go of some old relational patterns in my life and how I show up. And while I was very aware in my spiritual practice this morning of all that I'm grateful for, I was also really weighed down by grief, this heaviness. So I believe that a lot of life is living in the and we can be grateful and be going through a really tough time. Right. I'm, I'm
0: grateful for my, one of my first years of training, I was exposed to the to dialectical behavior therapy. It is such a freeing idea that you can, and the, also the idea that you can be grieving and be okay. You know, or you can be angry at a loved one and still love them. That that's not this black or white sort of thinking that I think you know is another part of what causes so much harm in our culture is we do get, you know, told over and over again, like it's right or wrong, you know, it's black or white. And, and, and probably in a corporate culture too, if, if a leader is very rigid, it doesn't make for a very um,
1: caring environment. Well, and the same is true at homes, whether it be a CEO or a parent, When someone is having a response and they're told they're wrong, no, that's not the way. It can be very deflating and very depleting. And then that's when people start to disconnect from their feelings or they realize this is not a safe place. So I'm going to do whatever I have to do. And that can look a number of different ways to just get along and keep myself safe. So I tell a lot of the executives that I work with, one of the best things that you can say is, I don't know, tell me what you think. Or said another way, I would love to hear more about what you just said. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to think that's the way it's all going to go. But to invite people to open up in a way that gives them the sense that they matter is a game changer.
0: And I think you're also suggesting that part of that, what changes, is an individual's ability to put aside this need to know everything.
1: Right. Exactly. That's why curiosity is such a connection pillar, because it actually means I don't have to have all the answers. The questions are more important. And I don't know about you, but the older I get and the more I walk on this earth, the more I know there's hardly anything that I really know. The longer I live, the less I know. The more complex life gets.
0: I often will share with other people, uh, John Cabotson's belief that we need to, we need to embrace the beginner's mind. Mm. You know, in a beginner's mind, There's all kinds of possibilities. And as soon as you think you've figured it out or you've become an expert, usually that means you've just, you found the solution and then you can't see all the other possibilities anymore. And so I I love that idea of of like letting go. So it just, uh, there's an awful lot of letting go in the process. And um, actually I will, I, I, want to say with readers is there's a real treat in the book. You talk about going away with your son and a couple of his friends. And I don't know if you'd share, share that story, but I got a big kick out of
1: out of reading it because I thought never, never would I do that. Oh, that is so funny. So yeah, we were in Montana and we were out on this trail with these two wonderful guides <laughs> And my son, who was, I think, 18 at the time, and two of his really good friends were with us, they scale up this cliff that takes them to a ledge that's 30 feet above this glacier-fed river or glacier-formed river. So the water's freezing. And they are jumping off this ledge, as I tell the story in the book, into this river, hooping and hollering. You know how young men can do. And Matthew, my son, came over to me, and I thought he was getting ready to say, "Okay, let's let's go to the next thing." And he wanted me to come up on the ledge. And Elizabeth, I have no idea what came over me because I am not an adventurer. I mean, I grew up with a mom who thought riding our bikes in the driveway could be fatal, right? Um, and as I walked by Mark, one of the guides, he said to me, "Remember that how you approach this." Will be teaching your son how to approach risks. And at that moment, this warrior mom took over. And I scaled up this cliff and stood on the ledge. And I was terrified. The boys wanted me to jump. And I'm like, what? You have no idea what it took just for me to climb up this cliff. Never mind, jump. And then I thought, well, even if I could jump, I'm going to die when I hit the water because it's so cold. My heart's going to seize up, right? Like I'm not 20 years old. So I was standing on the ledge, absolutely hanging on for dear life, crying, sitting down on the ledge. The boys are cheering me on. And all of a sudden, everything got quiet. And I said to my son, I can't let go. And he said, you have let go. And in that moment, it was like the invisible hands peeled my fingers off of whatever I was holding on to. And I released myself and I jumped. The rest is history. I survived it. As Matthew said to me, Mom, it wasn't pretty, (laughs) (laughs) but you did it. And I love that story because for me, especially the letting go as part of the recovery process is all those things. We think we can't do it. I've got to hold on. There's no other way. I've got to do all the things I've always done, control and gripping and doing all the things. And then we release ourselves into this sweet mercy of surrender and somehow or other the invisible hands hold us. So yeah, letting go.
0: I love that. I love that story because I would struggle with that myself. And yet I know it holds me back thinking, even thinking, oh, I could never do that. Even just having that thought, like how many times do we say, oh no, I'm not good at that. Or I, I could never do that. or and, and again, a lot of times that comes from our own personal history is realizing every time we wanted to ride our bikes out in the driveway, mom said, oh, that's the, you know, we get these ideas in our head and there is so much more we could do if we could let go. Oh, we
1: are our own worst enemies and fear, the fear that lives within us, our insecurities. That's what really keeps us hostage. Yeah. 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 Now I'm not going to climb up on a 30 foot ledge anytime soon and do that again, but it's on video. So in case no one believes it, we've got it.
0: Well, and I was really disappointed to hear that it wasn't pretty. I I, I thought <laughs> she's
1: going to say, and
0: and you are stunning. You did this perfect swan dive or something, but, but it's more realistic it to
1: think that it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty, right? <laughs> Which is most of how our letting go goes. It is not pretty. That's so true. That is so, so true. Well,
0: I just, I'm just mindful of the time and I want to double back and check with you on any ongoing projects, but, but I do want to say again, that the book is full of stories like that, like you're Hmm. letting go and you're just personal stories as well as stories with, with leaders in, in more corporate environments. But I really want that message to get through to listeners that this is a book for everyone. And I was sort of telling you about that. And you were mentioning something to me earlier, and I want to give you a chance to just tell us about
1: anything else you're working on before I let you go. Yeah. Well, right now we're really working on, you know, the uh, getting this book out, talking about it, retreats, workshops, speaking engagements, all the things that go with the, the lovely gift of having a book out in the world. And at the same time, I'm thinking already about probably my next project, which will be more about the connected life. And I'm beginning to write a lot about that. And concomitantly, I'm writing a memoir about my recovery. And there's definitely themes of connection and recovery, because as we say all the time in the rooms, connection is the antidote. So there's a couple of different things that I have going on and we'll see where the universe takes me. Good. I love that. And for listeners,
0: people can find um, links to get your book on your website,
1: correct? Yep. And it's where all books are sold. Um, And then my website is KarenJHardwick.com. And that's where you can find me on all the social platforms to Karen J. Hardwick. So I'll look for you there. Pretty Great. easy to find.
0: Great. Again, I I love that you see all of us as leaders because I think that's true. I mean, you can be a leader within your neighborhood. You can be that's a leader true. within yes. your friend group, and I think the book is really, really full of um, real guidance for how people can get that connection to themselves and to others. Thank you, Elizabeth. So thank you for being here today. And it sounds like there might be another book at some point in the future. And so we might get a chance to do it again. Thank you. It was a wonderful
1: conversation. I enjoyed every second.